seated and turn with me to Psalm 114, the 114th Psalm. This is found on page 827, if you're using a pew Bible, page 827. Page 827. Psalm 114. When Israel went out of Egypt, the house of Jacob from a people of strange language, Judah became his sanctuary and Israel his dominion. The sea saw it and fled. Jordan turned back. The mountains skipped like rams, the little hills like lambs. What ails you, O sea, that you fled? O Jordan, that you turned back. O mountains, that you skipped like rams, O little hills like lambs. Tremble, O earth, at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the God of Jacob. To turn the rock into a pool of water, the flint into a fountain of waters. The beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, as we look today at Psalm 114, we do so with this theme, the psalmist celebrates Israel's exodus from Egypt. The psalmist celebrates Israel's exodus from Egypt. Now, this particular section of the Psalter that we're looking at, Psalms 113 through 118, is referred to as the Hallel. So, you know the word like hallelujah, praise the Lord? Okay? So, Hallel, to praise. So, this is singing praise to God. And, of course, it has to do particularly, it's related specifically to the Exodus. Psalms 113 through 118. Now these would have been sung, these, this section, these psalms would have been sung during the Passover meal. 113 and 114 during the meal, and then 115 to 118 after the meal. So when the Bible says, and they sang a hymn and went out into the night, it's referring to the last part of this section of the Egyptian Hillel. That's why I picked this portion of scripture to preach on as we celebrate today the Lord's Supper, which of course is which of course corresponds to the Passover of the Old Covenant. Now, psalm 114 is one of the real gems of the Hallel. It's the psalm which most explicitly portrays the Exodus. An English Bible commentator by the name of Derek Kidner put it this way, quote, a fierce delight and pride in the great march of God gleams through every line of this little poem. A masterpiece whose flights of verbal fancy would have excluded it from any hymn book but this. Kind of interesting, isn't it? No, hymn, no human hymn book 
No human-derived hymn book would have put this song in. God did in his hymn book. And so a masterpiece whose flights of verbal fancy that you know, the mountains skipping like rams, little hills like rams, it would have excluded it from any hymn book but this. Here is the exodus, not as a familiar item in Israel's creed, but as an astounding event as startling as a clap of thunder, as shattering as an earthquake. And so the 114th Psalm, and by the way, I'll just mention, the Psalm vividly illustrates the parallelism of Hebrew poetry. And uh, that's how poetry rhymed, by thoughts, not by sounds in the Hebrew. And so as you go through this, you can sort of see the parallelism as well as the, the building of one thought upon the other. Well, today then, we want to look, first of all, at the purpose of the Exodus, verses 1 and 2. And secondly, the provision, or excuse me, the power of the Exodus, verses 3 through 6. And then thirdly, the provision of the Exodus, verses 7 through 8. So first of all, then, the purpose of the Exodus, verses 1 and 2. The first thing we note here in terms of the purpose is the idea of separation. Separation from the world. Separation from the world. Here we see that God redeems. The psalm begins, when Israel went out of Egypt. As Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher of the 19th century, put it in his commentary, the song begins with a burst of vengeance, a passion, quote, as if the poetic fury could not be restrained but overleaped all bounds. When Israel went out of Egypt. This phrase brings to mind the actual historical deliverance from Egypt. And of course, now we have to ask, though, what is the point of the Exodus? Because it wasn't simply the physical deliverance of Israel in, in history. But we know that that Exodus was pointing to a spiritual reality. What is symbolized, then, by deliverance from Egypt? Well, deliverance from the power of sin. Deliverance from its bondage, the Israelites having been slaves in Egypt, deliverance from its bondage, deliverance from its penalty, which of course is death, and the Israelites were threatened with death as they came out of Egypt, as we well know, as the Egyptians pursued after them. But of course, ultimately, deliverance from the devil, because we must remember that the plagues on Egypt were not simply to convey the idea, let my people go, but also they were deliberately designed in order to make fun of, in order to mock the false gods of Egypt, whether it be with regard to the Nile turning red, turning into blood, um, because after all the Nile was held up as a god, or the darkening of the sun, Ra, the sun god, you know, could not stand before the Lord. Or the uh, uh, children, the um, 
the plague with regard to ribbit, ribbit, the frogs, okay? Because there's a frog god in Egypt. You see, what was behind the persecution of God's people was a devilish, a, 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 a devilish plot, a satanic conspiracy, if you will. And it was all part of this false worship, this false religion, even as we see that in our day today. And this, again, is part of being delivered from the world. Being delivered from, not physically the world, but delivered from the world system. And this is portrayed then in terms, in physical terms, in visual terms, with regard to being delivered out of Egypt, being delivered out of that way of thinking, so that now our thoughts are conformed to the image of Christ, rather than conformed to the way the world wants to teach us. And so when Israel then went out of Egypt, the house of Jacob from a people of strange language. Now, even though greatly multiplied, the people here, the Israelites, will regard it as a single unit by God. They regard it as a single unit by God. And they indeed were united as a people. They were united in their willingness, first of all, to leave Goshen, that part of where they had been laboring all those years. They were willing, definitely. They wanted to get out, but also they were united as a people in the fact that not one person was left behind. As Psalm 105 says, not one of them stumbled, young or old. And so there was a united nature of the people of God. And therefore, God's purpose in the Exodus, in this separation uh, from the world, God's purpose was to rescue the entire covenant community. All of the nation was involved. All ages of people, every individual in this, in being brought out of Egypt. And this reality, of course, was not because of any goodness in the Israelites. As God said, I didn't choose you because you're so great, because you're so wonderful. I chose you because I love you, and I love you, and that's why I love you. And there, and, and notice, it was all because of God's grace. In the sense, first of all, he was doing the action but whom is he rescuing? Why, it was the house of Jacob? He was rescuing Jacob. Who was Jacob? He was a scoundrel, wasn't he? Deceiver who had to be transformed by the grace of God. And so he was rescuing not the house of Abraham. He was rescuing the house of Jacob to point back to God's divine grace. And this rescue then, the house of Jacob, was from a people of strange language. Now literally, this was true, there was a difference in language in Egypt, and certainly this would have been inconvenient. Even as we know, if we come across somebody who speaks a language that we don't know, we know how difficult it can be to communicate with that person. And the language barriers also, we should note, quite possibly could have led to beatings by taskmasters because of perhaps a breakdown in communication. But figuratively and spiritually, Christians speak a different language from the world. So this is not so much today in terms of a literal sort of thing. 
but rather it's the whole idea of the fact that we, as in terms of the world, we don't speak the same language. Zephaniah 3, verse 9, For then I will restore to the peoples a pure language, that they all may call on the name of the Lord to serve him with one accord. Again, this is not meaning a particular language, but rather in terms of the way that people formulate their thoughts and how they express them. Are they going to be pure? Are they going to be in accordance with the, with the divine will? And uh, Ephesians, we find the same thing in Ephesians chapter 4, the same idea, at least, in Ephesians uh, chapter 4, verse 25. Therefore, putting away lying, or I believe better translated, having put aside, as told, having put aside that way of thinking, that whole notion of, of, of how you look at reality, having put aside, and, and that... The, the rejection of the gospel, the rejection of the kingdom, having put aside the lie, therefore now positively as you speak, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Uh, verse 29, let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. Verse 30, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God uh, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Verse 31, let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And we're, we're inundated, we're flooded today with the messages from the media, from the world of entertainment, from academia. We're flooded with the message of the world. And those folks that are blasting out these, this message are talking literally a different language. If you talk about love, if you talk about justice, if you talk about righteousness, I promise you that the folks in the university and the folks in the media and most politicians have a totally different understanding of those things than what you and I do. But by the grace of God, we are delivered, you see, out of Egypt. We are delivered from a people of strange language. It is the world that has this strain, this set of strange ideas expressed by words by their talking. And so the first thing we see in terms of the purpose of the Exodus is separation from the world as God redeems, but then simply separation unto the Lord God. So not only does God redeem, but God indwells by his spirit. Separation unto the Lord. As the psalm says here, Judah became his sanctuary. Now, as you know, Judah is one of the 12 tribes of Israel. The root, by the way, the root of the word Judah comes from the Hebrew word yada, which means to praise. And so Judah then was separated unto God, particularly with the concept of praising the Lord. Now, this tribe was special. In Numbers chapter 2, we see that it led the march in the wilderness 
And from Genesis 49, we see that it was foreseen as the royal tribe, the tribe through whom Messiah would come. Judah. Judah became his sanctuary. Now this refers to a special place on earth, the land of Judah, but most especially, it refers to the people of God. For the whole of God's people was to be God's special people. All were to be set apart as priests, indeed as kings, as we know, Judah, all having as their motto, holiness unto the Lord. You see, the people themselves were God's temple. As Spurgeon said, quote, the whole people were the shrine of deity and their camp was one great temple. What a great blessing. What a blessed privilege. I mentioned last week College Hill Presbyterian Church in Oxford, Mississippi, the oldest Presbyterian church, and I think in Mississippi, certainly North Mississippi, that burned to the ground a week ago. That's sad, and you know, a lot of memories there, a lot of heritage, a lot of history. Wayne Faulkner was married there, and so forth. But as was as the people recognized. The church ultimately is not the building. It's the people. It's not the building. It's the people. And that's what we have here, even in, in the Old Testament, even in Psalm 114. Israel, that is to say, the people. Judah became his sanctuary. Judah, the people of God. This is why in Psalm 20, we sang it today from Psalm 22, verse 3. The Lord inhabits the praises of his people. He inhabits our praises as we sing the psalms to him. And so Judah became a sanctuary Israel. The people of God is viewed as God's domain, his kingdom, governed as a theocracy in which God alone was king. We know, of course, that King Jesus sovereignly rules in his church and among his people. He establishes his church. How did he do that? Through his suffering, death, and resurrection. He places his elect in her and safeguards them. He gives her his word and the sacraments. And he governs her life, worship, and work by means of his word and his spirit. As we take an overview of this section of separation unto the Lord, let me note a few things. Number one, Judah and Israel are mentioned together almost as synonyms. And what does that imply? It's implying there's no conflict between them. Remember the ten northern tribes that, that were that the ten northern tribes were called the nation of Israel when they separated the southern tribes? called Judah, and there was hostility between them. Well, what's interesting here is, is that the psalmist is, is looking, as it were, uh, to Judah and Israel not having conflict between each other, but rather being united. 
Secondly, as an overview, we know we also see that the separation unto the Lord involves both redemption and rule. The separation unto the Lord involves both redemption and rule. The word for sanctuary is related to the word for holy, kodesh. Dominion is related to the word for king, melech. And what we see here then would be two petitions of the Lord's Prayer. Hallowed be thy name. May thy name be praised. May thy name be hallowed. What's the next petition? Thy kingdom come. And that's what we see here. It's the sanctuary. It's the dominion. But also what we see here is that the poet is so intense that he forgets, as it were, to mention God's name and instead just uses the pronoun. Notice it doesn't say Judah became became the Lord's sanctuary and Israel became God's dominion. No, it says his. In other words, he is so intense on this that the name of God doesn't appear until verse 7 in this psalm. But this, he is so intense that he, he simply, and in his excitement, he simply uses the pronoun implying the name of God, but he uses the pronoun. This intensity helps to highlight the obvious fact that no obstacle can be placed in front of God's placing his people in the land. And so the first thing then that we uh, see here is the purpose of the exodus, separation from the world, separation unto God. Now secondly, we see the power of the exodus. And we see this in three different, three different scenes, if you will. If we talk about a play, perhaps, scene one, scene two, and so forth, they, you change the scenery. And in a sense, that's what we have here. So first of all, what's the first scene? of displaying the power of the Exodus at the Red Sea. The Red Sea, as we read today from uh, Exodus chapter 14, the Red Sea saw God. His presence, saw his presence in that glory cloud. The Red Sea saw God and saw his people following God's lead. And what did the Red Sea do? It fled. It went the other way. Exodus 14, of course, vividly portrays God's power that was at work. And so the power, of the, I mean, driving back the Red Sea so that God's people could go on dry land, as it were, through the sea. Secondly, at the Jordan River. At the Jordan River. The Jordan, swiftly flowing, was driven back so that the rapid river, contrary to nature, flowed uphill. Joshua chapter 3. As the people were coming into the promised land, the Jordan was driven back. Again, a great display of God's power uh, in the Exodus, but then in that, in that entrance into Canaan. And thirdly, not only at the Red Sea and at the Jordan River, but thirdly at Mount Sinai. This is a reference to Exodus chapter 19. 
And now notice, now it's, it's instead of uh, skipping to joy, for joy, the hills in Exodus 19, as again Spurgeon said, probably sprang, quote, in affright at the terrible majesty of Jehovah and flying like a flock of sheep when alarmed. What happened in Exodus 19? God gave his law in Exodus 20. And in that, he showed his power, he showed his glory, so that the earth trembled at the presence of the Lord, the presence of the God of Jacob. Now, it's been noted... Uh, well, well, we'll get to that in just a moment. It's been noted here that God's giving of the law brought about these magnified effects in terms of the mountains and the hills. And if, if that is what happened when God was giving his law, what do you think the reaction will be when God breaks his law? But we see, in any case, the power the power of the Exodus. And this display of power, my friends, was for a purpose. It was for a purpose. It was to bring about and to show redemption. It was to bring about and to show redemption. And particularly to signal the result of God's redemption, namely his rule, his reign. At Christ's second coming, heaven and earth will flee away, and there will be no more sea. And it was the majesty of God that made these hills to weep. You know, Isaiah 1 says that the, the animals know more about God's rule than we do. That they obey God more than we do. Yes. The rest of creation is more sensitive to God's presence than man is. And that's exactly what we find here in terms of the Red Sea, in terms of the Jordan River, in terms of the hills and the mountains. Creation understands these things better than we do. So we see then the power of the Exodus. And now thirdly, having seen the purpose and the power of the Exodus, thirdly, we consider in verses 7 and 8 the provision of the Exodus. Notice the command. The command is what? Tremble. Tremble, earth, at the presence of the Lord. The whole earth, you see, is to fear. Again, Spurgeon, quote, Let the believer feel God is near, and he will serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Awe is not cast out by faith but the rather it becomes deeper and more profound. The Lord is most reverenced where he is most wrong. Isn't that true? Amen. Tremble, earth, at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the God of Jacob, the father of the twelve tribes, that is, all Israel, the God of Jacob, again, God's grace for the despicable, God's grace for the schemer. Now what is the reason for this provision? Who turned the rock into a pool. It's a reference to King, And also we can see it in Psalm 107, verse 35. 
Notice that it is God who supernaturally supplied all their physical and spiritual needs, even as he takes care of us. Now, poetically, the psalmist represents that the very substance of the rock was turned into water. The very substance of it. But, of course, we know, like, who is that rock? That rock is Christ. That rock is Christ. Remember in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 4, Well, starting in verse 1, Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Amen. And isn't that what Jesus told the woman at the well? Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst, but the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. That rock is Christ. And so God then, you see, supplies the water. He turns the rock into a pool and the flint into a fountain of waters. Not only the rock, but the hard, flinty rock is changed. We know in Scripture that the gospel, or the kingdom, is portrayed as a great flowing river. You see, the reason for the earth to tremble here is not just grace, but provision. It's not just grace, but it is provision. It's God providing. The, the angels desire to look into the things of creation. They desire this. They are amazed at God's provision. And creation here is being called upon to tremble in amazement at the grace of not just providing for his people, but specifically providing for Jacob, that old scoundrel, and being called his God. Notice also the name of God used here is interesting. Uh, it is, uh, it, in verse 7, it is Adonai, not Yahweh. And once again, we have to be impressed with the almost understatement of it. The almost understatement. As we look to God to provide, for divine supplies are sure. He will fetch them even from a rock, if necessary. They are plentiful. The standing water, the pool, they are continual. The fountain is the provision of the exodus. Now I have eight points of application to the Lord's Supper from Psalm 114. So number one, first one is, remember the theme of remembrance. Remember the theme of remembrance. What the psalmist is doing He's pointing back to the accent. He's saying, remember this. He's pointing back to history. He's, re he's recalling this. And even so, we know what Jesus says. This do, as we observe communion, this do in remembrance of me. This do in remembrance of the deliverance that I have brought through the cross. 
So remember the theme of remembrance. Number two, remember the power of God that was necessary to bring about redemption and which accompanied its accomplishment. Remember the power of God. The power of God. As a matter of fact, it took the resurrection power the power of the resurrection to bring about our redemption. And so we, when we read a psalm like this, when we sing a psalm like this, we're reminded of the power of God that goes right along with his grace in bringing about our salvation. Thirdly, remember the deliverance from Egypt. Remember the deliverance from Egypt. And remember what that deliverance was pointing to. Deliverance from sin. The power and the penalty of sin. Deliverance from Satan, from the devil. Deliverance from death, ultimately eternal death. And deliverance from a miserable condition, having to put up with people of strange language. More, in, 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 more so than we, than, than the people of uh, the ancient Israelites couldn't understand the Egyptians. How difficult is it for us to understand the world today? They don't even know how many genders there are, right? They have no clue in terms of reality. And yet God is saying, I am going to be your God. You're going to be my people. I'm going to deliver you from all of that irrationality and all of that are all of those things which do not reflect my creation. So remember the deliverance from Egypt. Fourthly, remember or understand that the two bodies of water bookended Israel's redemption. Okay, so you know what a bookend is? They bookended Israel's redemption. The Red Sea we see God's deliverance at the beginning of their spiritual journey. At the River Jordan, the final deliverance of the Exodus into the Promised Land. And ultimately then, it's pointing to our ultimate deliverance into the Promised Land of Heaven. The first miracle, that is to say, the first miracle in terms of the Red Sea guarantees the final miracle. That is to say, God will follow through. And as we come to the Lord's Supper today, we're reminded not merely of his of Jesus' death, resurrection, we're reminded of his ascension, and we're reminded of his coming again. And so the first deliverance, the first miracle, guarantees the final one. Fifthly, rejoice in God's presence. Rejoice in God's presence. We see here the guarantee of his presence. And there should be then a holy awe at his presence. The guarantee of his presence and a holy awe at his presence. Sixthly, we look to Jesus Christ by faith. We look to Jesus Christ by faith. You see, he was the one who was stricken, smitten, and afflicted by God. And 
out of him gushed healing, refreshing waters. And so we remember that as we come to the Lord's table. Seventhly, appreciate how the Lord's Supper is a sign and token and also means a refreshment. Appreciate how the Lord's Supper is a sign and token. It's a sign. It's a, it's, it's a symbol. It's a sign. It's a token. But it is more than that. It is also a means of refreshment, for it is a means of grace. So it points us to something, but it also is that something as we come through the supper. And finally, my friends, by way of application, never forget the significance of Jacob. For in Jacob there is grace for the despicable, the despised, the disgusting, the undeserving. The house of Jacob from a people of strange language. Tremble, O earth, at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the God of Jacob. It is God's grace that we see here. Grace that turned the rock into a pool of water and the flint into a fountain of waters. My friends, the psalmist celebrates Israel's exodus from Egypt. And as we come to the Lord's table today, we need to remember these things. And we also need to celebrate our exodus out of sin, our being led out of judgment and into God's grace. Amen. Will you please stand for prayer? And our Father, we do pray that we would be refreshed this day, refreshed with the knowledge of what Christ has done for us, and that we make of all of his goodness. We thank thee, Lord, for the supper of the Lord. And we pray now for thy blessing to rest upon us. In Christ's name, amen.